Welcome to the Good Christian Girls Podcast. These are conversations about growing up in the evangelical cult bubble in the 90s and early 2000s. We were the kids eating snacks on the floor at our parents' feet at Newsboys concerts. We were the girls dressing up like princesses for purity balls. And we were taught that the phrase, millions of years ago, was from the mouth of Satan himself. Our mothers cried when we wore spaghetti straps to the mall. We went to church camps, on mission trips, and today, we're all in therapy for religious trauma. (laughs) I mean, really though, some of it was good and some of it was really very damaging. I'm Laura, your host. If you can relate to any of this, join me and have a listen. In this podcast, we bond over the way we were raised and share our journeys of leaving that world behind and seeking to become emotionally healthy, conscious, and thriving adults. So glad you're here. All right, we're live. Hi, everyone. I am so lucky to have with me today Mackenzie Maltby. We're going to be having a great conversation. Mackenzie is a deconstruction activist and advocate. Uh, I actually found her through some of her posts on social media about um, kind of leaving the evangelical world. She calls herself a recovering evangelical, which I love. Um, She works in economic development. She's an intersectional feminist, as well as an artist and a mother. And fun fact... Mackenzie and I went to the same high school and are both from uh, Colorado Springs, like evangelical mecca of the world. So welcome, Mackenzie. It's so great to have you. I also think it's important to note, like, we went to the same Christian high school. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Important detail. Um, And I think we had some overlap in church life as well. I, I grew up at a mega church in Colorado Springs. And that was like a huge part of my life growing up. Um, So yeah, you went there as well. Same. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So cool. Well, um, this podcast is, is basically for just sharing stories of people's journeys, kind of deconstructing and um, rethinking Christianity and, and leaving um, the evangelical world. So just to start off with something kind of fun, uh, Mackenzie, is there something you can share from your upbringing that like only people who were raised in the evangelical 90s will relate to? Like something that (laughs) other people in the world would think is, is totally crazy. And like mine, for example, would be buying swimsuits at, uh, like a popular store and then coming home and having your mom like sew together the cleavage or like add material <laughs> to make it more modest because that definitely happened in my family. <laughs> or, um, or even weirder. Like, but yeah, anything like that that you can share. I was going to say, or even weirder, like you have to do like a fashion show in front of like your whole family with your dad. <laughs> like just awkward. You know, I, so I grew up in the nineties, so I was, I'm an 87 baby. So, um, I kind of the height of my elementary school years were spent in Dallas, Texas, in the deep South. I went to a Pentecostal like church. Um, and so when you ask me this question on, you know, what in the nineties is something that, you know, other, you know, nineties evangelical babies can relate to is one, you know, I, I found, 
just yesterday, the archives of all of the videos from our church VBSs, our performances. Um, you know, I when I say the word prosperity gospel, I think a lot of us that can relate to that and understand what that means. When I talk about, you know, purity culture and, you know, doing things, you know, daddy-daughter purity events. When I talk about, you know, John Jacobs and the power team, if you're familiar with the power team, breaking breaking bricks for Jesus. (laughs) Um, You know, I think that's kind of, you know, hilarious in a way I was, you know, I use the terms like slain in the spirit. Um, I received my prayer language, quote unquote, when I was in fifth grade. Um, faint, Ooh, fainted, fainted, yeah. I, I know, fainted, um, which I actually didn't faint when I looked back. I just remember like laying there being like, I think this is what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, that kind of hyper performative. So I do think there's sort of this hyper, um, you know, Pentecostal prosperity narrative that kind of happened in that early nineties, um, mid nineties that I was a part of. And, you know, I always laugh cause it's like Chuck Norris went to my church, like, <laughs> It was just, yeah, it was a very interesting dynamic. And if you're not kind of familiar with um, my family, you know, my mom has written, you know, half a dozen books, Christian books, women's books, women's ministry. She has won two Emmys um, as a, you know, a television, you know, international television co-host. My dad worked with, you know, at least 150 nonprofits doing consulting and, you know, really spearheaded a lot of the initiatives with Israel to get Christians to come to Israel. So I grew up in a very performative, hyper evangelical Christian world. And so anyway, I answer your question by saying it's, it's funny to look back and watch these videos that I have been the last couple of days because they they're wild. I'm like, this is wild. I would never, I would never take my kids here, but for some Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. So, but when you laughed about John Jacobs and the power team, I'm always like, people, people remember that. Like if you were part of that culture, like you remember breaking breaking bricks for Jesus. Celebrities. It was a huge, Mm -hmm. there was, I I feel like that like Christian celebrity Mm -hmm. thing was a big part of my upbringing going to like concerts of christian singers or like yeah the power team um so that's funny i haven't thought about them in <laughs> forever <laughs> i wonder if they're still around. oh no they're not do yourself a favor though and like youtube it because it's just like you know nostalgia to the nth degree like you know come accept jesus yes, and then we're gonna, I will. I will. we're gonna rip <laughs> yellow pages afterwards so <laughs> oh my god Ah, okay. Yeah, memories. So you mentioned your parents, and I think that's a really interesting part of your story because um, you grew up kind of in, like, the spotlight. I don't know Mm -hmm. if you would say that that's true, but I definitely knew about, like, your mom, Mm -hmm. um, and I'm sure that influenced the way that you were perceived or that you felt like you had to present yourself growing up. So can you talk a little bit about that? And then maybe just kind of leading into like, just in general, what it was like growing up in your home and in your family? Yeah, you know, and it's probably long and belabored, but I'll give Reader's Digest, you know, I, like I mentioned, grew up in in the South, Um, I have, you know, there's four siblings. So I have an older sister who was adopted from Russia, a younger brother, who was adopted from Korea and then a younger sister who is biological. 
And um, so we're all, there's four of us in five years. So I went from being an only child to having three siblings in two years. <laughs> so I, you know, grew up with this notion very much of, you know, my parents were, you know, when, when you think about like the important Christian people, that is a lot of how I felt growing up. And my mom is gifted and extremely in hospitality and cooking and entertaining. And so we were always having the big wigs kind of think, you know, Gatsby style parties for Christians, you know, since I was little. And my dad worked, you know, very closely in the nonprofit sector and was extremely successful financially and in that. And, um, but I think there was always a bit of a disconnect for myself and feeling, you know, we were surrounded by so many people and I felt very much alone. And um, each of my siblings kind of has a different reaction and story that is theirs to tell. And But mine was very much of that firstborn. I have these very important parents that I don't even think they liked being married to each other, to be honest. And later when I was a senior, they got divorced. Um, but there's that hyper-performative, we rub shoulders with the important people. I mean, I've had prime ministers over to our home, you know, bodyguard, the whole thing. And, wow. But none of it was ever really, it never felt real to me. It always just felt like a, a bit of a show. And um, And I don't, you know, in hindsight, I think it's important to remember that we have to give our our parents and our situation, you know, all of it, grace. I do believe in, you know, knowing that our parents are just people, just like everyone else. And so uh, that's been a really important part of my story is understanding that there's no person or people to blame. It's just things that have happened and we, we, we deal with them the best we can. So that, yes, that was a big part of my story is, is, is watching my parents be very successful and have very successful friends. Um, and when my parents got divorced my senior year of high school, I watched the majority of their their very like posturing friends disappear. Um, they didn't really want to touch, you know, kind of a very salacious and scandalous story of, you know, Butch and Tammy getting divorced. And I was leaving for college in my own sort of good Christian girl way and really just sort of saw, you know, my dad has struggled with um, – addiction and as in recovery. And so is my younger sister. And so he had to kind of find his lane and my mom had to find hers. And my lane was, you know, I was going to go off to college and just say, fuck it. This is like, I'm going to screw everyone and everything and drink all the things and smoke all the things because I've been a good Christian girl my whole life. And, you know, four months after graduating high school, I you know, got pregnant and, um, with a friend of mine, not a boyfriend, just a friend and understanding that like my family had gone through so much. I really saw Mm -hmm. myself as needing to be that big grace story, you know, like that we always hear about, like, and, um, you know, looking back, I think I, what do you really know when you're 18? You don't know. (laughs) You really don't. And, um, I, but I did in my heart think like, I'm going to do, I'm going to prove that I'm, I'm, the best and I can handle this and put myself through school and raise this baby and got married, wow. got married to, you know, Cohen's dad. And he was my firstborn and I'd known him since I was 11 CSCS kid too. And I think we were trying to do the best we could with the information that we had, but it was not a lot of good information. And I think I still think yeah. struggle so much with, you know, you know, hearing my mom say like, but this is going to be so great. And you're, this is all the, you know, when really having a baby at 18 is just hard, even if you have support. So 
I think that was sort yeah. of the, the transition between, you know, kind of my growing up and needing to perform, watching my family lose everything. I lost everything. Mm. And then I was back to like being performance oriented. And so my therapist always says, you know, the, the goal always of healing is moderation, right? Like anorexia and gluttony, like those are extremes, you know, like there's so many, and I say that in like any sense of the, the term. And so I would swing constantly between all the things or none of it. And yeah. now I think so much of my journey, you know, 15 years post this experience has just been moderation. Like how do I get to a place where I don't work and operate in these extremes? So, but yeah, I just, I mean, I, the influential parts of my parents were long and vibrant and good in a lot of ways and very destructive in others. And seeing them as human has been one of the hardest parts of adulting is like, these things really fucked me up, but also like, I love you. And I see you as just Mm -hmm. people doing the best you can with your, the information you had. So. Yeah. I'm curious to hear more about that and how, or if they've evolved, but I wanted to go back really quick to something you talked about. Um, I'm just curious because you talked about growing up in these, like with these parties and hosting these big events for Christians. Mm -hmm. Was there alcohol involved in those events? Because I'm just, it's interesting seeing how like alcohol consumption has kind of evolved in the Christian world. Like where I grew up, there was no drinking ever anytime. And like, if Christians ever drank, it was like, like they're like second class Christians. But then there was kind of a swing later when I was in college and still attending church um, in the other direction. And when I started to get kind of skeptical of the church, I almost felt like new trendy churches were like embracing alcohol too much. And so I'm just wondering, um, like what that was like and what your experience, you said you went off to school and you were like, I'm drinking for the first time. Like, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on alcohol specifically? Well, I think that's an interesting thing that you brought up only because my dad is an, he's an alcoholic and I don't ascribe that. He ascribes that to himself. So I feel comfortable saying that. Um, and so, so much of, I think, and I say perverted with the quote unquote, not the way maybe we think about it, but the perverted nuances of Christianity is that there is so much that is hidden and that is, trite and you know like we hear about this even in the catholic church right it's you know massive amounts of sexual dysfunction within the priests and you know all these kind of repressed feelings but i'm going to go back to what i said in moderation right and so i think the thing that i see so much and what you have seen too is that there's a gluttony or there's a complete you know um like withholding, like there's, there's no medium because there's, yeah, church. there's no thoughtful way to engage that. So it's either like, I'm going to drink all the things or I drink nothing. And actually I believe health. And this doesn't mean like if you struggle with certain things, sure, withhold, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying for more times than not, the more we just leave, you know, lead completely anorexic lives in sex, in drinking, and our engagements, or whatever that looks like, the more that we find ourselves like pulsing that gluttony later. And so mm-hmm. just because there's no moder again, there's no healthy moderation. And we see that yeah. in purity yeah. culture, right? Like don't ever have sex. Don't do it. Sex is bad. Bad, 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 bad. 
but then you get married and now it's good. And now you have all of these individuals who are like, I've been told sex is dirty and bad. Or if I had sex with someone that I'm a chewed piece of gum and I'm, you know, like a wilting rose, like I have nothing to offer. And so we wonder why there's so much Mm -hmm. sexual dysfunction, even though they quote unquote withstood from the physical acts of things where you talk to other people who had very healthy sexual relationships before they got married and it's a, they're okay. (laughs) Like there's not this dysfunction. And so, um, I answer your question by saying, I think that the church, I think evangelicalism, I think Christians in general struggle with the anorexia and gluttony of whatever it is. Like they don't know how to live moderately in a way that is healthy. Like, and it's all either all sin or just do this thing. And, and it's, realistic too i mean that's really how i feel there was a perception that Mm -hmm. no one's drinking no one's having sex it's like that's what i thought growing up i'm like oh yeah no one's having sex in my school Mm -hmm. like i was very naive or whatever but it's that's not how humans are like it's not realistic so what ends up happening is then it's just suppressed or Mm -hmm. hidden and then you have all this like dark twisted shit that shows up later like even as a even when I was like 18 and still very innocent and like very much involved in church and everything I knew I didn't really want to ultimately marry this like very virginous guy because I felt like I saw all these stories where later on down the road like weird stuff comes out because if they're like suppressing Mm -hmm. for that it's bound that they're like a secret porn addict or like, right. you know, and we see that like, um, I can't think of who it was the, um, the Duggar yes. man. Yeah. Um, like that's a prime example, you yes. know? Um, yeah. So, and I think too, if like given the opportunity to express those things in healthy ways and understanding that, and that's, you know, I have a 15 year old son and I, the conversations and the fear, all of those things are things that I want to change because I think we forget sometimes that like the things we desire are innately human. Like there's nothing wrong about wanting to have sex with your boyfriend or girlfriend in high school, like that desire. And so like, I think what I've always kind of gone back to is just the true facts, ramifications of things, right? Like this isn't, even necessarily moral. This is like fact-based information. This is biology. And I felt like so much of what we were given was shame-based, fear-based, not informed, like not given tools to make our own choices. It was like, you just do a thing because this is what we do. And then if you felt differently, or maybe you're queer, or maybe you're different and you don't understand, like you just, that suppression comes out in unhealthy ways. And so I think the things that Christians always feared, like, oh my God, my kid is going to have sex. Actually, the thing they should be fearing is the easy button out of that, right? So like the fear actually isn't in them wanting something that is very natural and normal. The fear is the way they cope, which is, I don't know, drugs, alcohol, Mm -hmm. compulsive porn addiction. Again, that uh, gluttonous, you know, anorexic state. And so I think... I'm constantly like as a parent trying to get my kids back to moderation. Do I, do I want Cohen to go out and have sex with a bill? No, I don't because there are actual fact-based ramifications of these things. And I do believe that 
you know, I could go on and on, but I'm just saying like, I, I want to trust him and I want to tr- him to trust me that I will yeah. give him the full information and he will make a decision because it's his life at the end of the day. And I'm not going to control right. it. And he, I'm sure I'm assuming he also has a security that he's accepted and there's not like mm-hmm. shame there mm-hmm. because the culture where it's like, if you do these certain things, it's so shameful. So then mm-hmm. as kids, we would go to these great lengths to like shield ourselves from exposure. And that's where all, like I was saying, stuff comes from. So, well, it's like, okay. And I, I think I told you this too. It's like a, the John Steinbeck quote that talks about like, and this is what changed it for me. Like, especially going through my divorce is like, now that I don't have to be perfect, I can be good. And I, I've like lived, I've lived with that and I hold tight to that. And I tell that to Colin and my kids and I'm like, I don't want perfection, but I want goodness. And goodness comes from like accepting the beauty you see in the world. It's asking thoughtful questions and it's not being passive to the world. So anyway, that's, that quote really changed a lot of my perspective. I love that quote. That's such a good one. So how did you go from being, you said you married your son's dad mm-hmm. at like 18, you got pregnant really young. How did you go from that life to being an activist and yeah. being, kind of you are at now? Like, what was that journey like? Well, I'm, that's a, it's a long journey, but I'll bottom line it. I am. Um, yeah, so we we did the best we could with with the information we had and we both had been friends for so long and we were just a couple of teenagers trying to figure out our life and we had a, a second son Atticus who we just adore and 2015 I I really got to a place due to a lot of the experiences and choices that he made and that I made in response to that that I just felt that this is not what I wanted for my life anymore. And so I dissolved that marriage. And that's really when my deconstructing journey started because, you know, I was this big grace story, getting pregnant, getting married, and everyone was just like, we'd go on and on about how just perfect everything was. And I just threw a wrench in it. And I said, yeah, but this doesn't work for me anymore. And none of this actually feels real. And I don't, I would rather sit on the hot side of loneliness than have to deal with what I'm dealing with now. And I think like I have always had a very close relationship with my friend, Jesus. That's what I call him. He's my friend. And, um, but I started to see the institution kind of chip away. Like this doesn't work anymore. Like I kept trying to make like, like the square peg fit into a round hole and it just wasn't fitting and left, you know, my marriage and all the ramifications that come with that and the fear and the pain and, striving and and looking for my own spirituality in that way. And, you know, I'm seven years post-divorce at this point. You know, I've almost been divorced longer than I've been married, which is wild to think. Um, But I think the journey really taught me that I was allowed to let myself be messy and I didn't need to clean up for anybody else. I didn't have to clean up for my mom. I didn't have to perform for my family anymore. I gave myself permission to feel like I had bad days and good days. And there was days that I celebrated it and I went on dates and I loved it and I didn't feel shame about it. Or there was days that I needed to like stay in bed all weekend because I was so grievous with what I've been walking through. I just, I stopped policing my own life. And when I stopped Mm. policing my own life, 
I felt like I'm getting, this is what it means to get free. Cause I don't, you know, I'd argue, you know, John, John Steinbeck, when I just said like, you know, now that you don't have to be perfect, you'd be good. And I would add to that, like, and now that you don't have to necessarily be good, can you be free? And I have been working towards that. This is not by any means like, you know, a place you arrive. I think it's a thing you lean into. And so the more I lean into the discomfort of saying like, this is who I am and this is, you know, I, I, I don't date a lot, but like, this is my boyfriend that I have currently. And yes, we're going on a trip together and I'm sorry if that makes you uncomfortable, but like, this is what, this is what makes sense. And this is how I tell the truth about my life. And so I think divorce was really the thing, the catalyst that really just like, you know, shoved me off the, you know, proverbial evangelical train and I'm covered in like, you know, bruises and dust and mud and I, you know, stand up from the wreckage and I say, okay, well now what? So, and I think that's been my journey. It's not to get back to that train, but actually to forge a new path with informed, you know, consent and information that makes sense to my family and to my life. And I think, you know, if, if that makes me a better mother and a better friend and more true to myself, I, why wouldn't I do that? So I think that's what, yeah. and I think so many people, and you probably understand this too, is like, you know, those who have kind of found deconstruction in a way, I, I think there's always a point. There's something that happened conversation, an experience, a moment, a death, a resurrection, something that made you Mm -hmm. sort of question everything and say, I just don't know about this anymore. So. Yeah. Yeah. I relate so much. Like this is really um, great timing for me to hear this. And I love what you said about just the change that happened in your life when you started putting yourself First, really, I mean, you didn't say that, Uh but when you started caring about your own happiness is kind of what I heard you say, Um, because I know I was raised to think that happiness was like a bad word, Uh honestly. Uh Like, I really was taught that like, happiness is bad, joy is good, but joy can be like suffering, right? So I was, whenever I would see like books about like how to be happy or just hear someone say like, I'm just trying to be happy. It's, I still have a reaction when I hear that where at first I'm like, that's, you know, that's bad. Like people pursuing happiness is bad. And I think that's something that we somehow were taught in Christianity and it's like pretty deeply embedded in there. And I'm kind of going through that too, that it's scary. Like being like, is it okay to be happy? (laughs) You know? Um, and then once you say yes, like, oh my gosh, life changes so much. Uh, and yeah, yeah, I just think that's really cool. Like you said, you're not policing yourself anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's, for me, that's God and that's spirituality. And that's really like uh-huh. the truth connecting yeah. with God is in that. Um, oh, totally. I don't know where we got this idea that like God is is misery because that's not my experience. Oh, I know. Well, and like, and then what a beautiful thing to like come to like understand. And I was on another podcast where I talked about my friend Jesus and I just explained like Jesus becomes an ongoing like conversation I have with what I believe to be like 
I hate to use the word higher self, but like higher consciousness, like a, a, like I, when I think of Jesus, I think of like, this is who Mackenzie wants to embody, like this sort of goodness, truth, and beauty that sees the world in a way that isn't offended, that isn't, isn't torn apart by politics, that just understands like loving our neighbor and loving ourself. And like, that's the bottom line. Am I loving my neighbor and am I loving myself? And if I'm, if I'm doing those things, like, why do I, why do I feel so much fear? Or why do I feel so much anxiety? Or why do I feel like I'm not doing enough, you know? And sometimes that's just enough. And I love that for me. And like, what a freedom, but gosh, nobody ever really talks about like how hard it is to accept that. Like, it's hard to accept, like, to be happy. Like you said, like, it's hard to say like, you know, if, you know, somebody that's in your family or like extended whatever friendships say, but like, what are you, what are you doing with this relationship? Or what are you doing with this job? Or what are you doing with this decision that you're making? And you're like, it just gives me so much happiness to do it. And like, that doesn't have to make sense to you. Like it doesn't, I don't have to make sense to you. And I, I like the more I was able to say that over and over. And I believe it's a practice. It's not like you wake up one day and this is what you do. I really believe it's, you keep practicing your way into a new way of living. And the more I kept practicing, the easier it became to say, this is what I'm doing. And it doesn't mean I don't love you any less, but like, this is just my life. And you know, not reverting back to that performative place of like, but what do I have to do to keep my parents like thinking I'm amazing or my siblings thinking I'm amazing or my kids even like, I just wanted to, I just want to tell the truth and I want to say it plainly and I want it to, to make sense to me first and foremost. And, and that's it. Yeah. Yeah, That's something I'm learning lately. And I, I admire you because it sounds like you're still in a lot of spaces, whether it's with Mm -hmm. family and friends or just your physical town, um, city, Colorado Springs, which is still very conservative where you probably have to, I mean, for me, I kind of escaped. I've been in California for 10 years and I've been like living in very liberal spaces. So I feel, um, comfortable and like encouraged in general by my surroundings, but, what is it like for you just still kind of being in those spaces? Like I know when I, I love, have so much love for Colorado Springs and great memories from growing up there. But when I visited last, I do still kind of almost like feel a little bit like, Oh, like you notice that it is, is that evangelical like cloud almost? Uh (laughs) Um, So I don't know, like, how do you work through that? Just being, still being in those spaces and knowing that you've taken a different path. I think I use a lot of my art and like my writing, um, my way of weaving words to the like human experience to talk through them. So like, I think instead of teleporting myself out of that community, I love staying in it, to be honest with you and being myself, like being true to who I am in it and asking proper questions and not demanding answers and um, leaning into spaces that I typically would have to perform at and that I'm practicing to just be myself in and then letting people love me in it or reject me in it and understanding like it's not either or. I mean, you know, just really quickly, Max Lucado wrote a book years ago um, talking about Poncinello, who you know, was a children's book. But essentially, this whole thing goes where, you know, there's a puppet master. 
he has these puppets and they have this like puppet land and um, he created them. And all of these puppets was essentially either put, you know, gold stars or red dots. Gold stars is like, you're doing great. Red dots, we don't like you. You know, it's kind of that, again, that very extreme form of thinking. And Poncinello one day understood that his father just saw him as good and perfect, exactly how he is. And the stars wouldn't stick from people and, you know, the red dots wouldn't stick. And it's a story of like, we can't live the, leave the world we're in, right? We can't leave it. Like, maybe this is just where we have to be. But I've given up the idea that, like, I'm going to absorb your red dots. I'm not going to take those. And I'm not going to take your gold stars because I already know who I am. Like, I already know I don't, I don't need those things to walk around in this world that we're living in. And by doing those things, that has given me such a sense of, I don't, I don't take it from any side. I, I, I'm going to lead and work in this world exactly how I believe I've been created to do. So, so I, I love telling that story because it's the one thing that makes sense in my very ADHD, you know, ADHD brain when I'm like going to parties and I'm like, here we go. Like I'm going to have to perform, but then I just don't (laughs) let it. I don't let it. I don't, I don't take your gold star and I don't take your red dot. I just know who I am and that's enough. So, um, so that's how I answer your question is like, I, no matter where I am, whether I'm in a hyper conservative or super liberal, I'm never going to take the stars or the dots because at the end of the day, like I know who I am. That's so beautiful. I love that. I'm, I'm really encouraged by just your, like how sure you are. Um, and I, I love everything you post on social media too. And just like how bold you are. I think it's awesome and inspiring. Um, We're kind of starting to wrap up a little bit. Is there anything else that you want to share or like any other thoughts, questions that we didn't get to? I think, um, I think the thing that's important to remember is like, I, the thing I don't like about the deconstructing community is the animosity and like the anger. I think anger is healthy to a degree. Um, but I do think it's important to remember that our parents or our caregivers or whatever that looks like, we're, we're doing what they knew to do with the information they had. And I was able to give up so much of my resistance and my, I mean, I'm still punchy. Don't get me wrong. I'm still very political, but I've shifted like kind of my anger and my kind of riled upness to the powers that be and not specific people. And that's really mm. helped heal mm-hmm. a lot of my stuff because for a long time, it's just pointing fingers and I understand that. But my encouragement is always to just say, I'm here, here I am now. Like, I don't have to look back. Maybe I can't see far enough forward to move forward, but I can at least stay still and wait for the next best thing for me to do. And sometimes that's a proper question. It's not an answer. So that's my encouragement is, like, don't let resentment cloud your next best thing. So, yeah, that that's really good advice, and I totally agree because I do see a lot of anger too, and I think it's an important part of the journey. But it's definitely not the end goal. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not where you want to be for too long. Like, stay there as you know, mm-hmm. process your shit, but then move on. I love this quote that I got from, um, actually from Al-Anon, which is like a program for family and friends of alcoholics. And it's, 
if you knew better, you would have done better. Or if they knew better, they would have done better. And I definitely use that um, mm. when I'm thinking of like, people in my life or in my past who, um, who leveraged religious abuse or whatever. And just like you said, knowing that they were doing what they mm-hmm. thought was right, a lot of it motivated from fear. Mm-hmm. And if they knew differently, um, they wouldn't have done it. So mm-hmm. just kind of giving people like the benefit yeah. of the doubt. So, yep. yeah, I agree. So great. Um, cool. So two other little questions. I'm wondering if there's anyone you recommend that you follow or that has inspired you on this journey that you can share. And then also how people can find you on like social media and stuff. Sure. So I think, um, when people are looking for who should I follow, like how should I engage in, you know, this intersectional community of faith and all these things, my recommendation always is like to go to the BIPOC humans first. So go to the ones that, you know, have, you know, in general, not had visibility. So, you know, there's a long belabored list of uh, those individuals. I would start by going to Joe Holman's um, Instagram. She's fantastic. She's an intersectional feminist who came from, you know, she was a pastor and she's got a whole, you know, if you go to like all of her different, um, videos that she has saved. She's got like a list of like, you know, 25 people that are good places to start. So Joe Hulman, I definitely recommend. Um, and then for myself, yeah, I'm just at Mackenzie Malpe on Instagram. And, um, I'm, I'm a big believer in leaning into these questions that are kind of funky and hard to answer. And so I'm always up to have discussions with people about, you know, the process and fear and, and all of those things. So, but I would definitely start with a, a community that is already marginalized and work yourself, you know, out of that. So. Yeah, that's great advice. Well, thanks so much. Mackenzie. This was really fun. And it was just so nice hearing more about your story and all of your, your nuggets of wisdom. I love it. I really appreciate you being here. Yeah. Thanks, Laura. This was fun. We could talk for like hours. I know. Yeah. We'll have to do a part two. That sounds good. All right. Well, thanks again. Okay. Talk soon.